Romans, Romans, I keep saying that. John chapter 8, where we left off, beginning in verse 41. You do the deeds of your father. Then they said to him, we were not born of fornication. We have one father, God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me, for I proceeded forth and came from God, nor have I come of myself, but he sent me. Why do you not understand my speech? Because you're not able to listen to my word. You are of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources or circumstances or assets, if you will, for he is a liar and the father of it in verse 45. But because I tell you the truth, you don't believe me. Which of you convicts me of sin? And if I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? He who is of God hears God's words. Therefore, you do not hear because you are not of God. The Democratic National Convention is over. Your children can now safely play in the streets. I'm just teasing. I'm just joking. On August 28, 2008, on the anniversary of Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech, Barack Obama accepted his party's nomination to run for the office of President of the United States. Before his acceptance speech, there was a brief video biography which gave a thumbnail sketch of his life. His father was a Kenyan national who met his American mother at the University of Hawaii. According to the United States Senate Historical Office, the two divorced when the young Barack was two years old. Senator Obama said he met his father only once for a month when he was 10 years old. Obama said that his life was both defined and shaped more by his father's absence than by his father's presence. And the phrase struck me when I heard it. Defined and shaped more by my father's absence than by his presence. Sarah Gilbert wrote, It may be hard on some fathers not to have a son, but it's much harder on a boy not to have a father. According to Jerome Corsi, he writes, quote, In truth, Barack Obama Sr., Obama's father, was a polygamist who had already abandoned one wife and child in Africa when he met Obama's mother in Hawaii. After being educated at Harvard, Obama Sr. returned to Africa, abandoning Barack Jr. and his mother to live the life of a chronic alcoholic who ultimately killed himself in his second drunk-induced car accident while driving drunk on the streets of Nairobi. 
The Daily Mail again presented the underside of the story, reporting that Obama Sr. was a slick womanizer who persuaded Obama's mother, a naive 18-year-old white girl, to marry him without disclosing to her that he had left behind in Africa a pregnant wife from whom he had not divorced. Of course, he says, Obama's mother divorced his father when she learned of the fact that Obama Sr. was already married and had a child in Nairobi. Half a century earlier, Democratic presidential candidate Adlai Stevenson remarked, quote, The human race has improved everything except the human race. In this passage, there's a series of shocking truths revealed by the Lord Jesus Christ. When the Democratic candidate said that he was more defined by his father's absence than by his presence, it resonated across this country because each and every person can identify with the fact that somehow, in some way, they carry the virtues of their father. They carry the vice of their father. For many of you, your father has left an indelible mark upon you. For others, an indelible scar. Human beings are born sinners, and they fall desperately short of the glory of God. And when we sin, because we are born depraved, there is a sense in which each and every one of us, in a spiritual sense, has been born illegitimately. Depravity means that man is always falling short of God's glory. And remember what that word glory means. Glory is the sum and the substance of the totality of the attributes of God. God's glory is God's way of saying his omniscience, his omnipresence, his omnipotence. It's everything substantially about God that makes God God. And because God is holy and we are not, and because God is perfect and we are not, we fall short. Because we're born in sin. Depravity doesn't mean that all unsaved people are depraved as they possibly can be. Depravity doesn't mean that the sinner doesn't sense God or has no sense of good and evil. Depravity doesn't mean that human beings can't admire that which is good, that which is honorable, that which is decent. Depravity doesn't mean that all sinners are capable of the most wicked thing. Depravity teaches is that no sinner is able in their own power to please God. The religious leaders in John chapter 8 have claimed that Abraham is both their biological progenitor and their spiritual father. Jesus disputes their claim and says, Abraham is not your father. Abraham was a man of faith who walked with God and welcomed God. And so they not only affirm that Abraham is their father, they go one step further and claim that God is their father. Jesus makes it abundantly clear that if God is your father, you will welcome Jesus and love Jesus in verses 42 and 43. You will demonstrate your actions through your true spiritual paternity in verse 44. You'll hear the truth. You'll believe the Lord Jesus in verses 45 through 47. So we begin. Who's your daddy? 
Look at verse 41. In John chapter 8, verse 41, it says, You do the deeds of your father. Then they said to him, We're not born of fornication. We have one father, God. God made us in his image, but we were born into Adam's world. The Bible teaches that in Adam, all men die. As a matter of fact, in the book of Genesis, you don't have to read very far in chapter 1, in chapter 2, in chapter 3, in chapter 4, in chapter 5, that the laundry list of all of those people born after Adam and, and in his progeny all the way through Enoch till you come to Noah, over and over again it says, and Adam died and, and Noah died. It's interesting to me that the New Testament begins with the phrase, the book of the generation of Jesus Christ. That's what it says in Matthew 1.1. It's interesting to me that in Adam all die, but in Christ all can be made alive. In Adam we're born into a corrupt family. In Christ we're placed into a family that can offer forgiveness and hope. Jesus is accusing the religious leaders of being sinful and depraved. You do the deeds of your father. Do you know, it's been my experience. Most people don't care about the revelation of Jesus Christ. They don't care what the Bible has to say. Jesus is accusing the religious leaders of following a father. But it isn't the father in heaven. The religious leaders are stung and they respond by accusing Jesus of being the product of an illicit union. The religious leaders suggest that if anyone has suspicious circumstances surrounding his birth, it's Jesus. If you read the posting of Barack Obama's mother's marriage certificate online, it shows that Barack Obama Sr. married Barack Obama's mother February 1961. Barack Jr. born August 1961. This is exactly what the religious leaders are doing. They're bringing up the issue of paternity and suspicion. And you know what they're saying to Jesus? Jesus, we can count to nine. If anyone has reason to doubt the circumstances of birth, it's ours to yours. Already the rumors were flying that Joseph was not Jesus' father. Earlier they had claimed that Abraham was their spiritual father, and now they make an even greater claim that God is their father. Well, isn't that true? Didn't the Bible repeatedly call Israel his firstborn? Jeremiah 31, 9, I am a father to Israel. Moses, God commanded Moses to say to Pharaoh in Exodus chapter 4, verse 22, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. Moses rebuked the children of Israel for their disobedience and said in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 6, do you, do you thus requite the Lord, you foolish and senseless people? Is not he your father who created you? Certainly there is that sense that God created all people. Certainly there is the sense that God had a unique and specific calling for Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the progeny of Jacob. 
God created all things for his plan and for his purpose and for his pleasure. But make no mistake about it. Jesus is exploding the myth that we are all children of God, that we're all the same, that we all have one God as our father and each other as brothers and sisters, because Jesus takes spiritual paternity one step further and he looks for birthmarks. Proof of paternity, if you will. And he says something so controversial that it will change the entire course of Jesus' ministry. It begins with the spiritual proof of paternity. Jesus points out, you are not only what you do, but you are what you love. Look at verse 42. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me, for I proceeded forth and came from God, nor have I come from myself, but my father, that is, but he sent me. Hidden in this verse is the theme of the chapter and perhaps the theme of the entire gospel of John. Look and read it for yourself. If God were your father, you would love me. Look carefully how Jesus answers the claim of the circumstances surrounding his birth. Not only does he answer the claim, no, I am not born of fornication. Jesus refutes their claim. And what is his proof? That God is really his father and that they, if they would love Jesus and welcome Jesus, they would understand that. And there becomes the, the litmus test, if you will. This is the true test of a person's spiritual identity as it relates to God. Do you welcome Jesus? Do you love Jesus? And if you say, I respect him. I admire him. The Bible says that respect and admiration isn't really the true test. It's you welcome and you love him. Here now becomes the identifier. The line of debarkation that separates the unbeliever and the true believer, the make believer and the true believer, it is how do they respond to Jesus, not simply the Jesus of their imagination, not just simply the Jesus that they fabricated, but the true historical Jesus, the Jesus who's born of a, of a virgin, the Jesus who proceeds from the Father, the Jesus who is the eternal, self-existent, second person of the Trinity. Look carefully again at the passage. You see where it says the expression, for I proceeded forth and came from God. This is an expression what the theologians call Christ's eternal generation. That is, Christ proceeded from the Father. Jesus proceeds from the Father. There's never a time when God the Son does not exist. God the Son is eternal. God the Son is uncreated. God, is, God the Son is self-existing. He is the living God coming forth from the Father, penetrating time and space. And so Jesus enters into human 
history in the body of flesh by the Virgin Mary. And this, by the way, is true of no other individual. It wasn't true of Adam. It wasn't true of Noah. It wasn't true of Abraham. It wasn't true of Isaac. It wasn't true of Jacob. It wasn't true of Joseph. It wasn't true of David. And it certainly wasn't true of any individual who's listening to the words of Jesus. And certainly it wasn't true of the religious leaders who were trying to kill Jesus. No wonder Jesus says in in verse 43, why? Why don't you understand what I'm saying? How is it that you don't understand my speech? And then he says, because you're not able to listen to my word. And notice carefully in the text, it says word. It's not saying words. He's talking about the sum and the substance of the message that he has been bringing throughout the gospel of John. The religious leaders' hearts were dead. They didn't welcome him. They didn't love him. They didn't display the character of God. The character of God was absent from their character. The religious leaders deliberately willed to reject Christ's message. And in rejecting his message, they rejected him. So how is it that people cannot hear or understand the message of Jesus hidden in that passage is the answer that you ask and answer when you say, why doesn't my husband understand the words of Jesus? Why doesn't my wife understand? Why don't my children understand? Why doesn't the neighbors understand? Why doesn't my family understand? It's because the message of Jesus is unwelcome and unwanted. It's proof positive. In a perverse paternity. Why don't they understand? It's because they don't want to understand. And look at verse 44. Spiritual proof of paternity. You are not only who you love, but what you do. Look at look what it says in verse 44. You are of your father, the devil. And the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and doesn't stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, his own circumstances, his own assets, if you will, because he is a liar and the father of it. Jesus says that man's depravity, man's sinfulness, man's rejection is rude and grounded in their identification with Satan. But don't get me wrong. Jesus, whether you like it or not, believes that Satan isn't simply an immoral influence. It isn't a predisposition to do that which is wrong or perverse. Jesus believes in a literal devil. A wicked devil who wills, who lies, Who acts. Not only does Jesus point blank accuse them of misunderstanding their own spiritual roots, but also their sinful identification with the God of Israel and without even attempting to give the religious leaders a spoonful of sugar to help the medicine go down. Jesus says the religious leaders are the children of Satan. You have to understand, 
it would be like if you're watching Star Star Wars, and do you remember the scene in the movie where Darth Vader says to Luke, he goes, Luke, I'm your father. Then remember Luke's response, No! supposed to be one of the good guys. Do you remember how shocked and surprised? No, no, this is just wrong. Intensify that by about a million. And you get the idea of what's going on in the religious leader's life at that point. By the way, do you think Jesus is stooping down to petty name calling? Do you think Jesus is saying, I know you are, but what am I? I don't think so. Jesus sees an ugly birthmark, a spiritual marker that is unmistakable, a family trait. And Jesus points it out. Read it for yourself. And the desires of your father you want to do. The word desires is also translated lust. It's a descriptive word in the original language. It's the Greek word epithumia. The prefix epi is an intensifier. It means passion or desire magnified. And so here the word means a strong desire, an overwhelming passion. It's used in the good sense to describe a passion for the word of God or the scripture, to to describe a passion for integrity, a passion for righteousness. It's used to describe the struggle to turn from selfishness to the satisfying of God's desire and pleasing God when it's used in the wicked sense to describe our fallen nature and our tendency to please ourselves before pleasing others. It's if in particular the stakes are our own survival or our own comfort. It is that wicked predisposition to save ourselves at all costs and at the center, at the rotten core of the fallen human heart beats a heart that lusts to fulfill those things that are apart from God, apart from the mind of God and apart from the revelation of God. And so we by nature and by choice, the Bible says, are children of wrath. We are children of disobedience. We are children of the spirit of the prince of the power of the air. The devil. We crave sin like a drug addict craves drugs. We want more and we can't understand why the cravings never disappear. And since the cravings can't be satisfied, they have to be controlled. And that's what Paul talks about in the fifth chapter of Galatians when he talks about this amazing struggle, this war inside of us, the war between right and wrong and good and evil. No one likes to claim Satan as their dad. It generates emotions of disgust and anger. And the claim is understandably repulsive and horrible. So why does Jesus say this? 
Jesus isn't saying it simply to shock his audience. Jesus is communicating an unwelcome but profound truth. We have to come to grips with the horrible, repulsive facts about our own paternity, about our spiritual paternity, and the fact that the presence of Satan shapes our circumstances and molds our thinking and our heart and our behavior in the absence of Satan shapes our thinking and shapes our heart and shapes our circumstances. Sinful behavior and evil deeds can't come from the Father. They don't proceed from heaven. And so Jesus mentioned some of those evil deeds. He says that Satan is a murderer, a liar. Satan is a murderer. Human beings kill each other. How is Satan a murderer? The Bible teaches that Satan was behind the first murder when Cain killed his brother Abel in Genesis chapter 4, verse 8. It's reiterated in 1 John. Satan helped prompt and then promote Adam and Eve's rebellion and disobedience. He helped orchestrate Adam's sin and thus became the progenitor of the mass flood of spiritual death that swept throughout human history. Satan was behind the first death in the Bible. And make no mistake about it, as you proceed through time and space and history, he will be responsible for the last death. Satan was behind the first death. He's not just a murderer, but he's the murderer who causes all death. And when you go into a graveyard and when you pass each and every tombstone, when you walk into any place and every place that of anyone who has ever died, you're 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 going into a place that pays tribute to Satan. No wonder it. It says in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all have sinned. The only way that we're going to get out of this perverse family is through the death of Jesus. And he gives us this incredible, wonderful privilege to be adopted into a new family. So what is Jesus saying? God is not the father of murder. Satan is the father of murder. And therefore, those who commit murder can't possibly be children of God. And then Jesus reveals the true motive and the true meaning behind murder. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 22, he says, But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. Raka is an Aramaic word in that world that meant empty-headed. It was sort of a first century idiomatic expression of people calling each other airhead. And he said, but whoever says you fool, that's the person who's morally devoid of judgment, shall be in danger of hell, fire. Jesus reminds us that murder isn't limited to taking a person's life. It takes place when a person gets killed in your thought, in your desire, in your imagination. Do you remember when you were a child and you said, you whispered those words, maybe you said it out loud, maybe you said it under your breath, but you said, I wish you were dead. 
And maybe in your immaturity, you're thinking, well, I don't really want you to. I mean, if you live in Beijing, I'm okay with that. If you're alive in East Africa, if you're alive somewhere on the other side of the planet, it isn't that I want you dead. I just don't want you in my life anymore. But make no mistake about it. Even though it's childish and immature, the emotions churn on the inside and we kill each other in our bitterness and hatred. And when we desire someone's ruin, when we strike out at another person, when you slander them, when you malign them, when you seek to destroy another person's image, knowing that they are created in the image of God, you are in fact acting out your paternity. Think about it. Satan lusts, we lust. Satan kills, we kill. Satan refuses to abide in the truth. We refuse to abide or remain and live in the truth. And so Satan lies. We lie. It's his nature to lie. And then to protect that lie and preserve that lie. It's in our nature to lie. And anything, think about it, anything not true becomes the very definition of that which is false, whether it is a thought an idea, an act. In 1 John, years later, this apostle will write in chapter 2, I have not written to you because you don't know the truth, but because you know it, and that no lie is of the truth. Who is a liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? He is Antichrist, who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father either. He who acknowledges the Son has the Father also. You can't have a right relationship with God. You can't be connected to God. You can't experience friendship, fellowship, relationship with God unless you're connected through Jesus. And you need to understand something. Jesus loves these people. He loves them. He loves them. And he knows, he knows that that they will lie about him. And he knows that they will follow him. And he knows that they will persecute him. And he knows that they will eventually kill him. He knows their thoughts. He knows their peril. And he tells them the sober, offensive, repulsive, repugnant, loathsome truth. And they will never forgive him. The religious leaders don't stand in the truth. And they won't remain in the truth. And one of the birthmarks of perverse paternity is prevalent prevarication. It's it's the way of saying... The presence of lies means the absence both of the Father and of the Son. And then he provides spiritual proof of paternity, the presence of truth, the absence of sin. Look what it says in verse 45, but because but because I'm telling you the truth. Because I tell you the truth. 
you don't believe me. Do you understand what's happening? Jesus not only refutes their lie, he claims to be telling the truth. Jesus is also claiming that the religious leaders refuse to accept the truth. They refuse to believe the truth. And and who can blame them? I want you to think for just a moment. What is harder to believe? What is harder to believe than to believe the truth that behind every person who lies, who kills, who sees Jesus as an unwelcome person, unloved person, as a follower of Satan. Who wants to believe that? But Jesus is pointing out the inevitable. If you walk like, like Satan and you talk like Satan and you do exactly what Satan does, how can you detach yourself from him? How can we possibly change? How can we experience any hope? We have to accept the truth of what Jesus is saying. We have to accept the truth and then embrace the truth. If we're ever going to see our hearts change and the world change, we have to accept the truth about ourselves, not as we see it, but as Jesus sees it. We have to trust His love. We have to trust His mercy. We have to trust His grace. We have to trust His sacrifice on the cross, which tears away the masks that we wear. Do you know why the shallow person wears a mask? because they're empty on the inside. Do you know why the corrupt person wears a mask? It's because they're polluted on the inside. No wonder we need that cross. Because the cross tears away all of the external facades that we would like to think about ourselves. And we see His love. We see his mercy. We see his resurrection. Francis Schaeffer, speaking to an audience at the University of Notre Dame, said, and I quote, Christianity is is not simply a series of truths in the plural, but rather truth spelled with a capital T, truth about total reality, not just about religious things. Biblical Christianity is truth concerning total reality and the intellectual holding of that truth and living in the light of that truth. And so when a person says to you, well, you know, this is a political truth, but this is a moral truth. You can look them in the eye and say, liar, liar. You can't divorce that which God has united. You can't detach and separate that which God has united. You can't ignore what Jesus has made clear. The whole world's friendship and fellowship with God is based on the reality of how people welcome Jesus or don't welcome Jesus, of how they love Jesus or don't love Jesus. And the whole definition of truth is truth, not as you see it, but as Jesus sees it. Jesus told the religious leaders the truth. And they would never forgive him. I'm telling you the truth. And there are 
one of two responses. You'll hate me for it, and you'll never forgive me for it. Or you'll embrace it. Jesus came come into the world and He gave His witness of the truth. He gave His word concerning the truth. And now He points to His walk concerning the truth. Look at verse 46. Which of you convicts me of sin? Not sins, but the whole concept of sin. And if I tell the truth, why don't you believe me? From verse 46 all the way to verse 50, he will point to his essential sinlessness. And then from verse 51 through verse 59, he will point to his eternal sonship. And perhaps the most compelling, perhaps the most damning piece of evidence that we are fallen is not simply that we sin, but rather his sinlessness, his purity, his majesty, his Beauty, And then the Lord Jesus makes the most staggering claim, which of you convicts me of sin? We're struck by the absolute transparency of who he is and what he does. And not a single sin can be proven against him. He is sinless. He is perfect. He has the most intimate, personal relationship with the living Lord of heaven. Think about what's happening here. Jesus is challenging the religious leaders to point out a single sin, a single fault. Jesus is inviting the religious leaders to comb the entire book of Moses with all 613 commandments, restrictions, prohibitions, and find one fault, one transgression in either letter or spirit. He challenges them to take all of the prophets, all of the writings as well, and see if they can find a single deviation from that which is upright and true. He challenges them to talk to his mom, talk to his brothers, talk to his friends, talk to his friends' friends, talk to his neighbors, go to Nazareth, go to Capernaum, go to Bethesda, go to Bethsaida. He challenges them to go to Galilee, go to Cana, trace his footsteps every week, every day, every month of every year. Has he ever done anything that he shouldn't have done? Has he failed to do something that he should have done? Can you imagine if I was stupid enough to say something like that? All you have to do is walk out the door, talk to my wife, and go, okay, we're done here. Would you be so foolish as to make such an outrageous claim? I want you to understand what's happening. How can a perfect person who never lies under every circumstance be lying at this point? How could Jesus tell the truth about so many things and then lie about this? I'm going to suggest to you that he isn't lying. And that's the point. You should believe what I'm saying, he says. But make no mistake about it. The religious leaders do not believe him. And look in verse 47. He who is of God hears God's words. And that's the reason why you don't hear. Because you're not of God. 
Jesus has pointed out the transparency of his walk, and now he affirms the absolute trustworthiness of his word. Do you understand what he's saying? Everything that I've said and done is consistent with the truth. Notice how Jesus answers the question. People who are of God hear God's words. People who are not of God don't hear God's words because they're not of God. They can't believe God's word because they're not children of God. The person who is the child of the devil believes and embraces and walks in the lies and the lusts of the devil. No wonder they don't believe the Bible. No wonder they doubt the Bible. No wonder they reject its authority and inerrancy. No wonder people only accept those portions of the Bible that give them permission to continue in the lust or to continue in the lie. Bottom line, they can't believe God's word because they're not God's children. Hard words. Who is your father? Not just your physical father. Your spiritual father. His presence will define you. And shape you. And mold you. His presence. Or his absence. Do you know what the Bible says? If you receive the Lord Jesus as your Savior, you're adopted into the family of God. You have God as your Father and Jesus as your Savior. With God as your Father, you have all the advantages of being His offspring. Can a person know if they have God as their Father? I think that the answer is yes. As a matter of fact, in the little epistle of 1 John chapter 5, verses 11-13, through 13, which was written, the Bible says, so that the believer would have the assurance that they're members of the family of God. Seven times in that epistle, John speaks of being born of God. And what are the birthmarks of a true believer? Well, they practice righteousness instead of sin. That's what it says in chapter 2, verse 29 of 1 John and and 1 John chapter 3, verse 9. They love God and other believers. That's what it says in 1 John chapter 4, verse 7 and 1 John chapter 5, verse 1. They overcome the world. That's what it says in 1 John chapter 5, verse 4. They overcome the devil. That's what it says in 1 John chapter 5, verse 14. The absence of their father and the presence of their true father. Think about the father in heaven. The Bible says he foreknew you in Romans 8.29. He saw you coming. He predestined you in Romans 8.29. He elected you in Ephesians 4, verse 1, or chapter 1, verse 4. He called you in Romans 8.30. He'll conform you, Romans 8.29. He'll redeem you, Ephesians 1.17. He'll present you to Christ, John 6.37. He'll justify you, Romans 8.33. He'll indwell you, John 14.23. He'll seal you with the Holy Spirit, Ephesians 1.13. He'll bless 
bless you and keep you. He'll comfort you and sanctify you. He'll reveal His truth to you. He'll supply your needs. He'll discipline you and restore you and reward you. That is hallelujah. He'll shape you. He'll mold you. You'll be like your father. When I was growing up, there was a popular song by the zombies. You remember it? What's your name? Who's your daddy? Is he rich? Is he rich like me? Do you remember the words? Has he taken any time to show you what you need to live? Tell it to me slowly. Tell you why. I really want to know. It's the time of the season for loving. You know what a zombie is? It's the walking dead. It's the walking dead. And there are people out there and they're walking around. And they want something good and they want something decent and they want something whole. And they want something pure and they want something right. But the song ends. It's the time for and the season for loving who? Usually it winds up yourself. Caring about yourself. Watching out for yourself. Satisfying yourself. But no. If ever there was a time to welcome Jesus, it's now. If ever there was a time to love Jesus, it's now. And how you welcome Him. And how you love Him will become the greatest indicator of who you are. And what you are. I'm going to pray for you. Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray for each and every person within the sound of my voice. Lord, I pray that the scales would be lifted and the light and the truth and the love would become very, very evident. Who's your daddy? What's his name? What's your name? Have you found friendship and relationship and love and mercy and grace in Christ? Lord, we thank you that in Jesus we have a new family and new freedom and we have new family food. We can eat the bread of life and we can experience both the milk and the meat of the word of God. And that we have a new family fortune. A treasure grace, a treasure of mercy, a treasure of forgiveness, a treasure of hope, and we have new fellowship. (laughs) We even have a new family fashion, robes of righteousness, and a new hope, a family future, a reunion in heaven with you. And so, Lord, I pray for that person whose heart is empty and whose life is not really life at all. They haven't welcomed Jesus. And they can't with their 
with a clean conscience say that they love Him. Lord, I pray for that person and I pray that they would come to that place where they would do that which is necessary, that they would hear what Jesus has to say and that they would welcome His Word and then that they would welcome Him into their heart and welcome His love. Is that you? Do you need to welcome Jesus? Do you need to welcome His love? You can. Just ask Him. Say, Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner and I need You as my Savior. Come into my heart. I want to welcome You. I want to love You. I want to believe the truth. And then I want to walk in the truth. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.